the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to The Tom Sumner Show.
Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is one of uh, America's foremost experts on Saudi Arabia. He is the uh, former chief of mission at the American Embassy in Riyadh and author of Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. His name is David Rundell, and I think I'm saying that right. He joins me by phone. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I look forward to chatting with you this morning. It, did I get the name right? Is it Rundell? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm terrible with names, so I always ask. Um, you spent 15 years at the um, embassy in Riyadh, and, and as I mentioned in your introduction, you probably know Saudi Arabia better than most people. Um and and it's just been a few weeks since we commemorated the 20th anniversary of uh, the September 11th attacks on the uh, World Trade Center and the Pentagon. And at that time, President Biden um, was being compelled and saying that he would release some documents from the investigations around that event. A lot of people were speculating that there would be information about Saudi Arabia in there. And and the fact that 15 of the 19 alleged attackers were Saudi citizens has a lot of people wondering why the U.S. didn't uh, call Saudi Arabia out in the wake of September 11th. Well, that's a good question. Uh, it's on many people's minds, and it has a, a, a very clear answer. Um, let's, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Osama bin Laden really began uh, during the Mujahideen revolt against the Soviet-backed government in Afghanistan. And so I, I don't I don't want to make this into a lecture, but let's let's remember that in around in uh, in the early 1980s, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, and the United States, Pakistan, and Saudi Arabia cooperated to drive them out. The Saudis provided a lot of money. The Americans provided a lot of weapons and the Pakistanis provided the logistics and the training uh, or the, the method to get the stuff into the so-called Mujahideen, who were the people fighting what they called a jihad against the atheist Soviets. The Arabs, not just the Saudis, but and in fact really Muslims around the world, began to come to this event. If you remember, it was somewhat like the Spanish Civil War or where people from other countries took sides and came to help. Um, so people from Saudi Arabia, people from, uh, really people from Tunisia, from Morocco, many people, many people from Egypt, uh, even people from Indonesia and the Philippines came, many from Pakistan. So they came to try and help the Afghans defeat the Russians. 
or the Soviets, as they were called at the time. Um, and, the, and the Saudis were a big part of this, and, and they worked very closely. In fact, we went and asked them. We, we actually went and asked them to help and to help to write the check, uh, which they did. So um, then comes 1989. The Soviets are defeated, and they leave. And the United States um, pretty much washes its hands of the, of the the Soviet Union is about to collapse, and so we figure we're done. Um, most of those people uh, went back to whatever country they had had come from. Um, the problem is that then Afghanistan, instead of becoming a stable country descended into a, a civil war, really, if you will, uh, between different factions of the Mujahideen. Uh, the Saudis tried to sort that out, but in the end they kind of gave up too, and, and, they, and they went home. Uh, bin Laden was there, and this is getting probably more detail than you want, but he, he went home to Saudi Arabia as well. So now comes 1990, and at this point, Bin Laden is trying, he decides he really wants to continue his jihad in other places. So he goes to the king of Saudi Arabia and tells him that he wants to try and liberate Yemen, because uh, there's a Marxist government there too, and the Saudis were not interested in that. And he also then said that he wanted to be allowed to help bring all of his Arab fighters to fight Saddam Hussein when there was the invasion of Kuwait uh, by the Iraqis. And the Saudi government said, look, you, basically, it was quite interesting. The king said to him, look, there aren't any caves in Kuwait. You aren't going to be able to fight the <laughs> Iraqis the same way that you, um, that you fought the Russians. And, and we need the Americans. So he was very upset about this, okay? And this is something that is hard, perhaps, for Americans to understand. But there is a belief in some among some Muslims that there should be nobody in the Arabian Peninsula except Muslims. Now the Saudi government interprets that to mean nobody except you shouldn't have anyone except a Muslim in Mecca. Other people say no, it means the whole of Arabia. Uh, basically, this is something that is in their Quran, and how you interpret it is a matter of choice. Any event, Bin Laden got very upset. Uh, I think he got upset for a number of reasons. One is that he got slighted. They didn't use him to, to fight Saddam. And two, he really did get upset about the fact that they were inviting what he viewed as Christian or infidel troops to come. Um, so, to make a long story short, he got thrown out of the country. Uh, he left. He, got his, the, he had a break with the Saudi government. And he left and he went to Sudan, where he started up his, his uh, terrorist camps again. Um, of course, he didn't consider them terrorist camps, but that's what they effectively were. Uh, the Saudi government got more and more upset with him, they, and, he, and he started saying nasty things about the Saudi government. Um, and so they eventually took away his citizenship, took away his money. Um, then they started trying to get him ex extradited out of the Sudan, and we tried the same. And eventually the Sudanese government said, okay, we're going to kick him out. But they didn't hand him over. They let him run back to Afghanistan. So he went back to Afghanistan, and by this time, uh, it's getting complicated here, but the Taliban were starting to win the civil war, and so he became friends with the Taliban. And he, so he's now back in Afghanistan. 
The Saudis and the Americans are both after him by this point, and especially after it became clear that he was involved in the bombing of the American embassies in East Africa. As you probably remember, we had the bombing in Nairobi, and then we had the bombing of the coal, the ship in Aden. He was implicated in both of those. The Saudis, the Saudis at this point were tried. They went to the Taliban twice to try and get him extradited back to Saudi Arabia. And he... Um, at first, it looked like the Taliban would do it, but then they, then the second trip they went to get him, uh, he, they refused. And at that point, the Saudis terminated their relationship with the Taliban. Um, so um, the Americans were still trying to get uh, bin Laden, even up until the time of 9-11. But uh, the Saudi government was certainly not his friend by that point. Both the Americans and the, and the Saudis had been helping the Mujahideen, of which he was one, during the war against the Soviets. But after that, the Saudis and the Americans really were not his friends anymore. He, be, he declared war on the um, United States. This is bin Laden. Uh, he said many nasty things about the king of Saudi Arabia and said the king of Saudi Arabia should uh, resign. Um, the Saudi government was definitely not helping him by this point. Um, so that's pretty much the story. You ask, it's an interesting question. You say, why did, were 19 of these people or 15 of the 19, um, Saudis? And that's, an, that's, that's really pretty clear why that was. Um, well, let me, let me, it, let me It was easy for this. them to get visas. That's the bottom line. I mean, Saudis did not have a problem getting visas into the United States. Egyptians, Pakistanis. He had many people in his, in his gang, if you want to call it that. Uh, but the ones that he used were the ones that could get easily into the United States, and those were mostly Saudis. More with one of America's foremost experts on Saudi Arabia, David Rundell. Straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. 
Joe Bai from the Blue Lions. Dan Sterling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions and you know the material and you, and you care about it and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? Mm. It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. More with one of America's foremost experts on Saudi Arabia, David Rundell. Straight ahead. Let me Let me jump into this with you a little bit if we can david sure. the the fact that there were 15 of the 19 uh, attackers that were from saudi arabia or were saudi citizens um you said something about some of the some saudis believe that all of arabia should be muslim some think it only applies to mecca and what that made me wonder and, and I wish you'd explore it a little bit so we could understand the um, uh, uh, structure of, of governance in Saudi Arabia. How much does the king and, and the government of Saudi Arabia represent its people? And, and would Saudis be easy for bin Laden to recruit without the support? of the Saudi government? Uh, that's a good question. Um, so let me get, how would, is it, would it, how would it be easy, how easy would it be for him to recruit people? Um, the Saudi government definitely supported 
the war against the Mujahideen. Uh, they, they encouraged people to do, I mean, the war against the Soviets. They encouraged people to go to Afghanistan. It was a, a popular thing to do. Many people thought that, uh, that they should go and help the other Muslims who were being attacked by the atheist Russians. And the government supported that financially and publicly uh, to a considerable extent. Um, after the Soviets were defeated, the government did not support it anymore. After, uh, they did not encourage people to go and participate in the civil war that was going on in Afghanistan. They did not encourage people to go to other places where some of these jihadists decided they wanted to go. For example, some decided they wanted to go to Chechnya. Some decided they wanted to go to Bosnia. Some decided they wanted to go to Yemen and continue this uh, struggle which they saw, which had been, been ignited um, during the Afghan war against the Soviets. And the government of Saudi Arabia did encourage people to do that, and so did the government of the United States. Uh, but after it was over, no, they did not. They, we stopped, and, and they, they stopped as well. Uh, however, did it continue in the minds of many people? Yes, it didn't continue in the minds of Americans because we were never really encouraged to do that. Americans were not going. Very few Americans, a few converts went, but very few Americans went. But uh, it did continue in the Arab world, yes. So, and so you can say that, that's, that um, in, indirectly the Saudi government and many other Arab governments who encouraged this jihad against the Soviets sort of kicked this thing off and got it started, and it had unintended consequences. I think that's, a, that's a, an accurate, fair, both fair and accurate statement. Well, it, it at least put a force in place that could then be turned to other targets. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It, it was kind of like the genie that got out of the bottle. David, how have relations been between the U.S., and Saudi Arabia, and is is our relationship based solely on oil, and is that, no pun intended, drying up a little bit? Okay, well, that's two questions, and the first yeah. question is that the relationship fundamentally began over the issue of oil, but it has always been, as some people use the phrase, thicker than oil. It has more components than simply oil. So yes, oil is important. So also has, was the Saudi support for the United States and the West during the Cold War. During the Cold War, Saudi Arabia was really our strongest ally and our most consistent ally against the Soviet Union in, in the Arab world. If you look at the history, you will see at different times, Syria, Iraq, Egypt, uh, all of these countries at one time or another sided with the Soviet Union. The Saudis never did. Uh, in part, that was for religious reasons. They are very religious people, and they saw the communists as atheists. And so they, they view us as people of faith, people of, re of a religion, maybe not their religion, but they call us people of the book, which is to say we have a book 
our book is the Bible, they have a book, and the, and the Jews have a book, which is the Torah. So they put those people in a different category. So we're sort of allied with them in that. Anyways, they certainly preferred us to the atheists of Soviet Union. So they helped us in many ways. Um, uh, financially is what they usually do. Often they, would, uh, they write checks because that's really all they have. They don't have a big army. Uh, they don't have a particularly robust or effective intelligence service, but they have a big checkbook. And so when we ask them to help finance things, uh, they often did. And one of the things we asked them to finance was the war in Afghanistan, which they definitely wrote checks for that. Another thing which people sometimes uh, forget is President Reagan asked King Fahad to help support the um, Contras in, uh, in uh, Nicaragua. And the king said, okay, I don't know much about Nicaragua, but if you need help to fight communists, okay, I'll write, write a check. Now, Reagan got in some trouble for that if we had the Iran-Contra affair. But uh, the Saudis just were doing pretty much what, the, um, what they thought the president needed. Uh, and there were many other examples of this where they helped us during the Cold War. Um, another, another issue which they've helped us on is... Um, they have an important role in the um, Islamic world because they control Mecca and they control what sermons are given in Mecca and those sermons are given five times a day and listened to by a billion people around the world. And if that message is a radical one, uh, that is a problem for us. And in general, that has been a moderate um, message, certainly over the last 20, 25 years. Um, and, for example, they tell people, don't be a terrorist. They tell people, don't, um, don't do suicide bombing. They tell people, be careful about how you give money. Um, now, they didn't always do that to the extent that they do it now, but after 9-11, they definitely saw the need to begin to be more strict on that. On, that is on the question of raising money. I wasn't talking about the question of uh, suicide bombing. I was talking about the question of raising money before, um, and that brings me to the third point, which is when the Cold War ended, uh, we didn't really need their help on that anymore. But we did need their help on the on the war on terror, and as I say, Bin Laden was was trying to overthrow them as well. Uh, Bin Laden was trying to let me be clear about that. Bin Laden wanted to overthrow the government of Saudi Arabia. Uh, he never really thought he was going to overthrow the government of the United States, but he definitely thought he had a shot at overthrowing the government of, of Saudi Arabia. So they were not his friends. Um, and they began to help us uh, on, uh, in counterterrorism. And I can say definitely and, and emphatically that there have been occasions when cooperation with Saudi Arabia on counterterrorism saved American lives more than once. Um, and the final thing to say about that is that many people don't realize that al-Qaeda in 2003 began a campaign of trying to overthrow the government of Saudi Arabia physically, trying to do that. They had an insurrection that went on in Saudi Arabia for three years where the al-Qaeda was shooting policemen on almost a weekly basis. I was there for all of that period of time, and they... Um, they over, they took over the American consulate in Jeddah and killed five people. Uh, they tried to blow up Aramco. They tried to, they did blow up the Ministry of Interior. They um, shot people, uh, Westerners, in their offices. 
they were they were out of control for several years, um, and the Saudi government, through a number of methods, finally defeated them and and drove them out of the country. So, Bin Laden was no friend of the uh, of the of the Saudi government by the by you know by 1990. Uh, he was he was uh, he was on their most wanted list. That's for sure. So um, so you ask me how did the um, how why are they important? And I would say they're important for oil. They're important for their strategic location. They're important, which is which is at the crossroads of Asia, Africa, and Europe. They are important for their um, financial support to our various policies, and they're important in their role in Islam. Now, has any of this changed? Um, the question there is really, you know, on most people's minds, America is now energy independent, or at least we were. Uh, uh, some, we were for a while, anyways. Um, and does that make us um, less dependent on the Saudis? Um, oil is traded on a global market, so the price of oil is really determined internationally, and the Saudis continue to be the largest oil exporter, and so they do continue to play a major role in the price of oil internationally, and that does affect the price in the United States, and it does also affect um, our trading partners. So while we may not need Saudi oil, Japan, China, Korea, they still need it, and they are our trading partners. They buy the things we produce. We buy the things they produce. And if their economies are damaged, that would have an impact on us. So the Saudis' importance in oil markets uh, really does, it still is, it still is quite significant. And I will make one last point on their importance in the oil market, which is, and this is something for people to understand, is that the, the Saudis have huge reserves of oil. They produce more oil than most. It, it depends. Some days it's Russia, some days it's America, some days it's Saudi Arabia. They all, what, all, those are the three top producers. They're all in different order, one, two, or three, usually. In fact, always. Um, and they produce oil very cheaply. They can produce oil for $3 a barrel, uh, whereas in America it's more like you know 40 so they are cheap, and they have a lot of it, but the main um, benefit or the main strength that they have is the fact that they maintain a surplus production capacity. So let me say that again. What's important is not the volume or the price of the oil they produce, but the fact that they keep pretty much every day 2 million barrels of spare capacity. That means they drill the well and then they just turn it off until they need it and until someone calls for it, until there's a disruption in the economy. Nobody else does that. No other country does that, and certainly no oil company does that. The president of Exxon doesn't drill, and this costs tens of billions of dollars to do this. It's not cheap. So the president of Exxon does not spend billions of dollars drilling wells and then saying, okay, I'll just keep them for a rainy day. The Saudis do this. It's not a commercial decision. It's a political decision, and it helps them stabilize the market. And that means when there's a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, when there's a civil war in Iraq, when there's a strike in Nigeria, 
Or, quite frankly, when the United States says we want to put sanctions on Iran and we're going to stop everybody from getting Iranian oil, all of a sudden there's a shortfall in the market. And who makes that up? Uh, it's the Saudis. And they have this ability to do it. And so they, if you look at the numbers, they cut, some days they reduce the production and other days they increase it. And it's almost the same number. It's pretty close. They increase it just as much as they decrease it to try and keep the market, they can't control it completely, but they try to keep it uh, balanced. And why, why do they do that? And then this is the last thing I've talked for too long here, but um, they would like oil to remain part of the global energy mix for a long time because they have a lot of oil. This is in their own self-interest. And they realize that extremely volatile prices or extremely high prices uh, is bad for demand, that if, the, if, if all the global economy goes into a recession, the demand for oil will go down. So they don't, and they saw that happen in 1973 and 1979 when the price of oil went too high. So that killed, killed demand. They don't want that to happen. They also realize that um, if things are too volatile, that makes oil unreliable. And if oil is too expensive, like I said, demand will go down. What will happen? Everyone will put the um, third uh, layer of insulation in their house. Everyone will um, start driving a smaller car. People will start drilling for oil in out-of-the-way places like they did in the, in the 70s when they went to the North Sea or to Alaska because Saudi oil was getting too expensive. So they, they try to keep it within a, what they consider to be a reasonable and affordable range. So um, that's the story on oil. I don't, I don't think it's going to... If you look at the International Agent, en, Energy Agency, they believe that the demand for oil is going to continue, until, to, continue to grow until 19 or till 2030. So even with the best intention to go green, um, oil is not going away for quite a few years. And the Saudis will be a key part in helping us with that transition. Um, in part, because, and this is the last thing to say, but in part because if oil prices go too high um, and people start having to pay a lot for gasoline, their interest in all of the green transition, I think, will, will reduce, be reduced. Uh, people will, will become angry that, you know, we're not building more pipelines. People will get angry that we've stopped leasing on federal lands. People will get angry that um, we're stopping fracking. All of these things which, which create more oil, so, but they are also perhaps opposed by people who are green. Uh, but if gasoline prices get too high, that stopping those things will become politically difficult. And you, so you need, still need the Saudis to help with the green transition. So in any event, that's probably more than you wanted to hear, but uh, I hope that answered your questions. No, but it, it did, uh, David, as I, as I get to know you a little bit, which and I'm really enjoying this conversation, and it's extremely enlightening, um, but I'm wondering how you managed to uh, uh, focus your thoughts into a, uh, a single book. <laughs> oh, well, that was an interesting experience. Um, let, let me ask you a little bit about the book, David. My, my guest uh, for the listeners is David Rundell, who uh, served in uh, the Foreign Service in the Middle East for 30 years, 15 in uh, the embassy in Riyadh. 
And he has a new book. Um, I think it's a new book. It's uh, Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. And, and I want to ask you about both parts of that, of that title, David. Um, what do you mean when you say vision or mirage? And is Saudi um, Arabia at a crossroads? And, and what are their possible paths? Yeah, that's um, those good questions. Um, when I wrote the book, Saudi, let me let me back up. Say Saudi Arabia is going through very significant changes politically, economically, and socially. I have been involved with Saudi Arabia one way or another for forty years, and it changed more in the last five than in the previous 35. So it's going through a dramatic change at the moment. Um, And when I began to write the book, it wasn't clear to me whether this was for real or whether this was a mirage. Uh, I think having finished the book, and having the book uh, now, we did the paperback version just came out. That's absolutely right. It, and I, and I, if people want to read it, I'd encourage them to get the paperback. I, I had them make the print a little bigger in the paperback version. I thought it was I thought it was a bit hard to read the not hard, but it was <laughs> the, the I, you know it, the I, I said you need to make the print a little bit bigger here. So that get the paperback version if you're going to get it. Um, so politically. The kingdom had, for 60 years, been ruled by a collection of brothers. The old king who started the country, really, in 1902, the modern version of the country, uh, and he died in 1953. And he, he's called Ibn Saud, and he set up a system. He had about 50 sons, about 34 were left when he, when he finally died, and um, he had a system where they shared power. And this really, in an, in an interesting way, was kind of a balancing of power. Uh, we have sort of a balance of power in between branches of government. He had a balance of power between his different sons, who actually some of them had their own independent armies. Uh, so it was a balancing act, and it, 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 it kept the country stable, but it also meant change was quite slow. Um, the new king, King Salman, has changed that system, and he has put his son in in charge to come after him. Uh, that's Mohammed bin Salman, uh, rather than one of his brothers. And people, some people criticize him and say, well, he ended the system which had worked so well. But the reality is he didn't end it. The system ended itself because they ran out of brothers. There's only really one. There's no more brothers. I mean, they're all dead now, and the only there's about four of them left. But they're really old and sick, and they're not really able to become a king. So he had to make this transition from the sons of Ibn Saud to the grandsons, and that was always going to be very tricky because the 34 brothers who were alive when the old king died. They were brothers. They could all sit in one room. They could more or less come to some kind of an agreement. They weren't all equal, but they all had a voice. But when you get to 500 grandsons, uh, all of whom think they should be the king, um, that's a real potential game of thrones. 
And so the king was decisive, really, in engineering the rise of Mohammed bin Salman and concentrating power in his hands and um, making sure there wasn't going to be any real competition against him uh, when when his father died. So that was a big change, and, and we'll have to see how that works. But the political system is... Power is definitely much more concentrated in in uh, than it than it than it was in the past. That will mean both good and bad. It means that this young king now, who he's really runs the country on a day to day basis, he has the ability to make dramatic changes, which people really they couldn't do before because they always had to have a consensus. But on the other hand, he is you know much less limited and there are fewer checks and balances on him so it's both good and bad so let's look at some of the things he changed and when i say it's a vision these are the things i'm talking about um the 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 quickest the easiest one to talk about is economics in that he's really begun to try and do three things there he has tried he wants to balance the budget which was in bad shape when he became when king salman came became king um, the, he wants to create more jobs for Saudis, and he wants to diversify the economy away from oil. And he's made progress in all of those all of those areas. He was making pretty good progress actually until COVID came. COVID set back everyone's economy, and it, including theirs. Sure. Uh, but just to, uh, without going into a lot of detail, he did things which were dramatic that nobody had done before. More with one of America's foremost experts on Saudi Arabia, David Rundell. Old-fashioned radio For a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Hey! <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell, East Village Magazine, Flint Institute of Music, Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg, Flint Community Schools, MTA Flint, Flint Comics and Entertainment, Hamity Complete Food Center, The Flint River Watershed Coalition, WH Wisecarver, The Genesee County Road Commission, Lone Museum Auto Fair, Thomas Appliance, The Genesee Health Plan, Whiplet Technology, My Community College, it's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to tom at tomsumnerprogram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon, 
they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hopper. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Ellen Sherman, Cleveland housewife and mother. Hi, I'm a nuclear physicist and commissioner of consumer affairs. In my spare time, I do needlepoint, read, sculpt, take writing lessons, and brush up on my knowledge of current events. Thursday's my day at the daycare center, and then there's my work with the deaf. But I still have time left over to do all my own baking and practice my backhand, even though I'm on call 24 hours a day as a legal aid. How does Ellen Sherman do it all? She's smart. She takes speed, the tiny blue diet pill you don't have to be overweight to need. Collect these paper bags, and I have them right here, all folded and everything. In case anyone needs a paper bag, I have Yes, one. speed. Because I fold them neatly, you know, I don't fold them just any old way. I Why not ask your family doctor for a prescription today? And, and when that runs out, you can ask your neighbor's doctor, and your mother's doctor, and your college roommate's doctor, and your best friend from high school's doctor, and your babysitter's I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. In the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with one of America's foremost experts on Saudi Arabia, David Rundell, straight ahead. He started making Saudis pay taxes. Okay, now that's a big deal. Nobody, they were not paying any taxes before. Uh, and he said, you know what, we can't continue like this. It's like, you know, it's, there's this, we're going to run out of money, and you people need to start paying some taxes. And also, I've got to start making you pay a realistic price for gasoline. They, were, they still get gasoline subsidized, but it was... 25 cents a gallon five years ago. Uh, 
And so he was selling them gasoline very cheaply. He was selling them water, which is mostly desalinated. Uh, that is to say they make it in from the seawater, and it cost them a couple of dollars to make it, and they were selling it for a couple of cents. Uh, so he was, giving, he was giving them electricity. He was giving them a lot of stuff for free. Uh, and he just said, look, this, you know, I can't do that anymore. So this was a dramatic change that many people thought should have been done before, but he had the, um, if you will, the authority and the ability to force it through. Um, he's also cracked down on corruption, which is another story we can talk about. Um, that, that's, that's, that's been significant, that uh, King Salman was always one of the more honest princes, and he resented the corruption that he saw around him because he thought it retarded economic growth. And he has, I wouldn't say he eliminated it, but he has definitely reduced the amount of corruption that there was. So those are some of the economic changes. What I think is most interesting to your listeners are the social changes. And he's done those social changes um, really in a cup for a couple of reasons. I, one is that most Saudis are now under 30 years old, and they want these changes, whereas 30 years ago most Saudis were much more conservative than they are today, and they didn't want these changes, but now most of them want these changes. Uh, also, he wants to bring foreigners to work in Saudi Arabia. At a, he wants people to invest in Saudi Arabia, and they aren't going to come there if Saudi... Uh, social norms are dramatically out of line with the rest of the world, like women can't drive or something like that. And so he wanted, he wanted to bring Saudi Arabia more into line with the rest of the world, and he wanted to make it a more attractive place for Saudis because many young and educated Saudis were leaving the country. They were saying, you know, I'm out of here. I want to go to Dubai because in Dubai I can go to a bar, I can go to a nightclub, I can, my wife can drive, you know, so I can sit in a restaurant with my girlfriend. So, um, so he, he wanted to stop that drain, brain drain. So what did he do? He did a lot of things. I mean, really quite dramatic. Um, so, number one, most people know that uh, women can now, they used to not be able to drive. Okay, now women can drive. But it really goes much beyond that. Um, there used to be something called the guardianship regulations, this was a system of rules in which a woman had to get written permission from either her father or her husband to do many things, to open a bank account, to get a passport, to travel abroad, to go to university, to have a cesarean delivery. All of these things you had to have written permission. Uh, including my wife when we lived there. She had to have written permission from me to travel about. Um, so um, that all has, it wasn't just one law, it's a series of laws, but most, uh, probably 95% of them have been abolished now. Um, there were a number, the number of jobs that women could have was very limited. Women could basically be doctors or teachers. That was about it. Now that's pretty much all changed. Now there's women, uh, well, there's women engineers. They couldn't be engineers. There's women geologists. There's women lawyers. All of this has changed now that we have women, uh, the chairman of one of the biggest banks is a woman. The editor of one of the biggest newspapers is a woman. Uh, there's a woman on the board of Saudi Aramco, the oil company. All of this happened within the last five years. Um, 
There's now women deputy min. There's no woman minister yet, but there's women deputy ministers. There's women deputy mayors, which is all all brand new. Uh, so there's been a lot of changes in relationship. Women can now sit where they want in restaurants. Women. Oh, they used to not allow girls to have sports. Uh, and women used to have to have conservative dress. A lot of women still want to have conservative dress, but it's not enforced. Uh, the religious police, who used to have a lot of power, have had their power um, stripped from them by and large. Women used to not be allowed to go to sporting events to sit in the audience. Uh, now they can do that. All of these things they're doing on their own, basically because of King Salman and his son. And when you look at what's going on in Afghanistan today, where we spent uh, you know, billions of dollars and thousands of lives, and things are going backwards. You know, girls' schools are being closed. Women are being put back into their black robes. And in Saudi Arabia, where we didn't spend any money uh, and didn't get any Americans killed, a few got killed in Operation Desert Storm, but that lasted for all of three days. Um, you know, we didn't. We our investment there has been much less, and they're going in the direction that we would like. So I think that, you know, the reality is that uh, we ought to support that, that it's, uh, it's going in precisely the, right, the kinds. We've been encouraging them to do this kind of stuff for a long time. Well, David, uh, and, that's, uh, and now they're doing it. That's a, that's a great point to end on because we're just almost out of time. And I feel, David, like we've just scratched the surface, like maybe we want to get together again and talk about some other aspects of uh, Mideast uh, relations with, uh, with Saudi and with the U.S. Um, but let me do this. I, I do this with all guests. Um, I give them an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and, and what you've been up to past, present, and possibly future. David, do you have a website? Uh, well, there is a website, yeah. There's a website called Arabia Analytica, which is the uh, consulting group that I work with. But really, if people want to get a hold of me, I mean, you know, I'm <laughs> the best way to do it is just use, use my own email. Uh, you know, it, it's just uh, just send me an email, which is uh, rundeldh at, uh, at, I use my Gmail. So just use rundeldh at uh, rundeldh at uh, gmail dot com, and that one uh, gets answered all the time. The corporate one I look at sometimes, but not every day. So um, yeah, that's the best way to get a hold of me. And the name of the book is yeah. uh, Vision or Mirage, and um, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads by David Rundell, and it's now available in paperback. David, thank you so much for spending this uh, this hour with me, and keep up the good work, my friend. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Hard to believe it was an hour. I uh, hope we were able to help your listeners understand a little bit more about a very odd uh, and confusing but important place. All right. Take care, David. Bye-bye. Oh, mm, Bye. Again, that was David Rundell. He uh, served for uh, 30 years in the Middle East, 15 of those in the uh, embassy in Riyadh, and he is uh, probably uh, one of the world, well, America's for sure, if not the world's foremost experts on Saudi Arabia. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <music> Thank you. 
That wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program, but not before I say thanks to all of my guests today and tell you a little bit about tomorrow's show. I can't believe how fast today went, not just this last hour, um, as was uh, said by by my guest David Rundell, author of Vision or Mirage, Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. But the whole show went flying by, including my conversation uh, during... Uh, the middle hour of the show talking about uh, a new book by Robert Dylan Schneider called Nailing It How History's Awesome 20 Somethings Got It Together. And uh, we started out the show today uh, talking with um, Peter Bonney, who has written a memoir called uh, Uprooted Family Trauma, Unknown Origins, and the Secretive History of Artificial Insemination. Very interesting and very different conversation. Coming up tomorrow, it's Wednesday, which means armchair politics. If it's Wednesday on the Tom Sumner program, it's armchair politics. We'll start the show out with uh, economist Chris Douglas, who will uh, talk a little bit about the economy going forward into 2022 and then we'll have our weekly roundtable and uh, Janworth Nelson from East Village Magazine will be joining our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki on the left and Henry Hatter on the right for uh, let's see she she did our uh, our, our uh, last week's show um, which was a repeat from Halloween and now she's doing the first show of the new year with us. So tune in for Janworth Nelson and our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, tomorrow for Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program, and economist Chris Douglas from the University of Michigan Flint. Should be a good show. I hope you'll join us. In the meantime, good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.